Uh, this morning we're going to talk about Make Me a Servant, and we're moving our series back into the book of Acts, and we're talking about life change, the life change that Jesus gives. And we've talked about when we first kicked off our series in Acts how uh, sometimes we can place a lens on Acts that's all about uh geography and journeys and things like that and miss a lot of the really important pictures that are being taught to us as as you go through the book. And, and I think that's especially true from Acts chapter 6 uh, through Acts chapter 11, where we are getting pictures of people who have uh, had their life changed dramatically uh, because of Christ. And the person we're going to look at this morning where that is the case is in regards to Stephen. In, in Acts chapter 6, you have a, an interesting scene unfold where we have a problem in the church at Jerusalem where the Greek widows uh, are being neglected. And the solution that I think is put forward is interesting. The apostles say it wouldn't be good for us to leave the tax that God has given us to carry out as we are devoting ourselves to the preaching of the gospel and to prayers, and that seven men need to be selected for the task of making sure that these women are not neglected in the daily distribution. But one of the things that I want us to think about as this scene opens in regards to tracking about Stephen is that what you have right out of the gate is that there are these seven men who are already able to serve. It is not that the apostles stand up and say, boy, we have a need and I hope one day some people among you might be able to grow in wisdom and stature and things like that so that you could be useful and helpful in the work that needs to be done one day. But you will notice that the qualifications that are given, he just simply says in Acts chapter 6 and verse 3 that they have a good reputation, that they are full of the Spirit and they are full of wisdom. Essentially, look among yourselves and find people who are already able to step into this capacity. To find those who are able to uh, have a good reputation, who are full of wisdom, who are, who are full of the Spirit. And they are able to go through this church and they are able to select these seven men because ultimately they are prepared for the moment. That they already are ready for that moment. And I think that's such an important picture that is given to us is, is sometimes we have the tendency to wait for someone to tap us on the shoulder and say, okay, I think you should start getting ready for something in the future. You know, maybe one day you could... Uh, be a servant or one day be a shepherd or one day be a teacher and start getting yourself ready now. And the thing that I want you to see right as we get this picture of the Jerusalem church is apparently these men are already preparing themselves. They were already getting ready to do something like that, that there wasn't a need to say, okay, well, we're going to have to go through this whole training ground over the years until finally somebody can do this. But to be able to say, you, 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 and you, we, we, you, you can do that. You're already full of the Spirit. You're already full of wisdom. You are already of a good reputation. You are already that kind of person that you can just step in at a moment's notice and become a servant. And I think that's one of the important pictures that when you think about coming to know Jesus and you think about the life change that Jesus brings 
One of the first things you constantly see as you read Paul's letters, and you certainly see this in the book of Acts, is that people are stepping into the place of serving. They're ready to serve. They are looking to serve. They, they, they are going to do the task. In our Bible study in Philippians, we've observed that it's not just simply Paul, but there's this Epaphroditus person that we don't know much about. And we know that Timothy is doing something. Then we even saw some unknown person, a true companion. He's already involved. And there's two women that we're told about who are also doing the work side by side with Paul. That you are always given the picture that As you come to Christ and you understand what God has done for you, you immediately want to be a servant. You prepare yourself for the task. You want to do what you can and look for those areas where you are able to serve. And I think we should be fascinated by that as this chapter opens, that here is this need and it doesn't become a, oh no, what are we going to do? There's seven men who are having a good reputation who are full of wisdom, who are full of the Holy Spirit, who can just step in and start serving in that capacity. Which I think is what makes the rest of chapter 6 fascinating. Because as was read for us us from verse 8 to verse 15, wouldn't you expect verse 8 then to say, and so Stephen and these six other people What they did was, here's how they delegated the task, and here's the whole organization, and here's the Greek widows, and here's the Jewish widows, and here's how they did everything. You will notice that we never hear anything about that ever again. (laughs) It is fascinating. You would expect there to be a whole thing about, okay, well, here's what they did, and here's the success, or here was the problems, or here's the solution, or anything like that. But rather, what we are told in verse 8 is that Stephen is going around is full of grace and power and he's doing wonders and signs and he's preaching and he's so powerfully teaching that we are told in verse 9 that people not only in that area but even from Cilicia and Asia are coming to rise up and dispute Stephen. And so they're arguing with him over the gospel. And and it says there in verse 10, but they can't withstand the arguments that Stephen is making as he's proclaiming the gospel of Christ. And here's what I want you to be struck by. Stephen was selected to help make sure the widows were receiving the distribution. But he's going way past that. He's just going far beyond that. He doesn't look at it and go, okay, well, I've been given this one task. And so I'm going to stay in my lane and I'm going to stay right here on this task. And I'm not going to do anything else because I've been given this one task. He goes far beyond. Sure, he's going to take care of what he's been tasked to do. But notice what's described about him that he goes on and is preaching he's proclaiming he's he's defending the gospel of christ he's even doing signs and wonders and don't think that stephen is an anomaly the next chapter is going to be philip's doing the same thing philip is also one of the men who's tasked to the distribution and here he is and he's also going around preaching and proclaiming and going far beyond what he's been tasked to do by that church as a servant And I think the point that is coming before us is such an important one and a beautiful one in the book of Acts, which is you see that servants 
don't look to do what's the minimum, but they look to go far beyond. That they want to do as much as they can do. And I think it is just so impressive to look at Stephen, and as we know later on with Philip, and to see that they don't just say, well, we're just going to stay right here and do as little as we can, but rather are willing to go far above and beyond. And I hope that we would always consider that that's true not only of a servant wanting to do more, but that's just true when it is talking about any relationship in terms of a display of love. In, think about a marriage relationship. If your goal is to display your love to your spouse by doing as absolutely little as possible, how do you think that's being received? (laughs) It is interesting to me that so often we can understand this on a human level that Doing the minimum is not a display of love. If your Valentine's Day card last month said, because it's Valentine's Day, Brent, (laughs) nobody's being wowed by that. Nobody's going, wow, you swept me off my feet with that great love. And yet we can portray that to God. Well, just what's my minimum? What's my basic? What? What? Just keep me in my... Well, I'm already doing something. Somebody else do something around here because I've got my little box right here of things that I'm doing. Stephen doesn't do that. Stephen doesn't say, hey, why don't you go argue with those freemen for a while? I've got to take care of this over here. You don't see them doing that. You don't say, see Philip later on going, you know, I'm supposed to be taking care of this. So I'm not going to deal with this Ethiopian eunuch. Somebody else should do that. It's so important to see that the heart of a servant is a heart of love. And if we truly love God, it's never going to be about the minimum. It's never going to be about, well, how little can I do? Or, well, I only am told to do this particular thing. One thing that I've said many times, I haven't said it in a while, so I should, so I should say it again. You don't need the church and you don't need the shepherds to tell you to do what the scriptures already tell you to do. You don't need R-A-O-K on that. God already gave it to you. (laughs) And sometimes we sit back and go, well, nobody's told me to. If you see it, do it. If there's a work to be done, if there's a task, if there's an area of service, if there's anything in the kingdom of God, God's already put that upon you. God has already given that to you. And that's what I think is so interesting that you don't have between verse 7 and verse 8 and the apostles went up to Stephen and said, hey, by the way, while you're doing this, could you go around teaching some people too? That'd be really great. We really appreciate it. No, Stephen's just out there doing it. He's a servant. That's the essence of being a servant. A servant doesn't look to do as little as possible. The servant wants to do as much as possible. And that is what is so powerful about what is happening here is In our terms and in our language, we would read Acts 6 and Stephen is just average Christian guy. He's just part of the church there. And he's been tasked to do something that we'd say, okay, good. He's he's doing this work of taking care of the widows. And yet 
Now look what else he's doing. He, he, he's arguing the gospel of Christ to such a degree that notice in verse 11 of chapter 6, we're told they are instigating men and bringing out false witnesses saying that we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. He's so powerfully teaching that the opponents are going to try to get him in a world of trouble. And they start telling the council there, well, he's just blaspheming Moses and he's blaspheming the temple and he's blaspheming the law. What kind of impact was Stephen having that they felt like they needed to do that? How powerful was Stephen going around proclaiming this gospel that not only do they have to send people from other areas outside of Jerusalem to confront him, you know, they're bringing their best debaters from Asia and Cilicia. Here they come. But when that's not successful, they go, we're going to have to turn him over to the council. And remember, this is the council that had Jesus killed. This is also the council that had the apostles beaten and Peter and John imprisoned. And so now Stephen is falling into that. And, I, and this is an aside to the lesson, but I just think it is so interesting. Verse 15, when it says, as they're looking at him, the council gathered together. And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And that's perplexing to read, right? You read what is going on right there. But it connects to the, the prior sentences. Because remember, what are they charging against him? But that he is proclaiming words against Moses and about Moses' law and about Moses' customs. But when you hear that here is Stephen and his face is shining like an angel, does that remind you of something? But... Moses and the delivering of the law and his face shining. And there's this implicit idea that while this council and these false witnesses are saying, Stephen stands against Moses. No, he doesn't. He's actually reflecting Moses and reflecting the law of God. He's not standing against it. He's for it. Because what he's about to show in chapter 7 is that this has always been God's plan. This has always been God's purpose. And so we're seeing the picture of, of a servant in Stephen so powerfully. And then what happens next is also fascinating. When you come into chapter 7, chapter 7 has confused people for the longest time for this reason. Because the charges against Stephen are you are proclaiming against Moses, against Moses' law, and against the temple. And as a lot of writers say, if he is going to defend himself of the charges of preaching against the temple and against the law of Moses, he doesn't do a really good job because he doesn't ever really address that. <laughs> he doesn't start off by saying, friends, I am not against Moses. <laughs> And I am not against the temple and I am not against the law. This is a misunderstanding. And if you would just go back and read the scriptures, you would see that I'm not against Moses at all, but that Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses. He doesn't do that. Which seems like you'd say that's the way to get out of this, out of this trouble. But notice that's not what he does. There is absolutely zero time defending himself. I'm always fascinated by that in this chapter. You have a chapter length here where he talks for 52 verses, 53 verses, and never says anything about himself and never says any kind of defense of, now here's why I'm teaching what I'm teaching 
or here's why I'm right. Here's why I'm, I, I'm saying truth to you. So interesting. What he does is he just goes for the truth of the gospel. And here's how he does it. In, in verse two, he just starts by what seems to be an innocent story about Israel's history. It seems on the surface to start very nice. You remember Abraham, our forefather, and how he lived in Mesopotamia, and he was called to Haran, and the promises that were made to him. But what you will notice that Stephen begins to say is essentially reminders of rejection. He begins by, after talking about the promise made to Abraham and how that promise would be fulfilled. Notice the words of verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. The wording is very careful there because remember when Jesus was alive, what was the problem the leaders had of Jesus? They were jealous of him. And so here Stephen just goes ahead and walks on that and says, you remember way back when Joseph and remember the patriarchs, the Israel, here's how Israel treated Joseph. They were jealous of him and they rejected him. And as he presses on in the, in the account, he goes on a little bit further and he starts speaking about Moses. And in verse 23, he recounts that when Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. Verse 24, and seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Listen to verse 25. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. He says, then Moses comes along and here's what Moses does. Moses comes in and sees his oppressed people and does something about it to rescue Believing that they would understand that he had come for their deliverance, but they did not understand that. And then he brings in Moses again. He brings in Moses again after Moses is called by God in verse 30. And he starts talking about uh, the, the, the burning bush and how God had called him and was going to send him back to them. Verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you ruler and judge over us? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of an angel who appeared to him in the bush. He says, the very one that Israel said, who are you to be our savior and leader and redeemer? God chose to be the one to lead. But if that were not enough, verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Notice double rejection. They rejected Moses the first time when he came for deliverance. And then he goes into the wilderness. God calls him and says, you're going to be the one. He goes to him again and leads them out. But what happened? Israel rejected him again. Remember when they wanted to stone him and go back to Egypt? 
That's what's being reminded of us here. And this whole scene is showing them that what the people have done is rejected God to such a degree that you will notice where he goes with this in. He brings in Solomon next. And in verse 47, it was Solomon who built who 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 built a house for him. Yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? This might be the only moment where Stephen might slightly defend his teaching. Because they are saying that Stephen is preaching against the temple and Moses and the law. And here is the answer. Solomon said God didn't live here in the first place, which gives you a picture. Stephen probably was walking around saying, God's not here because you all have rejected him. And now he brings in, that's not blasphemy. Solomon at the construction of the temple said, God's not here. But ultimately the point is that the reason God is not here is because you have rejected God again and again and again. And who would have believed the irony? Go back to verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. Here's the irony. Who knew? That when Moses said a prophet like me would arise, the thing he meant was a prophet rejected by Israel just like Moses was. Who would have believed it? That's why he brings this in right here. All you have is a history of rejection. All that you have is a history of resisting God. In fact, Moses himself says and experienced your rejection. So when the one who is like him, a prophet like him will arise, guess what? You're going to reject him. He's the one that we proclaim. In fact, that's exactly where he goes in verse 51 when he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Now, here's what I want us to see in this, in this whole message that he gives, is that a servant's willing to say the hard things. A servant is willing to say the hard things. You'll notice that he doesn't sugarcoat the gospel here to them and say, you know, I know you guys always say no to the things of God. And, you know, I understand and I feel your pain in that. But, you know, you really should look at Jesus again. I want us to see that he goes to the point of trying to get them to understand that the essence of understanding the gospel means that we are in trouble in terms of our eternity before God. We live in a time right now where the proclamation of the gospel excludes the idea of salvation, but is simply, you know, your life would be better if you'd just come to God. 
Things would be so much better for you. But we have to understand, if you were going to tell people you need to be saved, saved from what? Salvation implies danger. If I need to be saved from something, then I'm obviously in danger. There is a problem. And you cannot proclaim a message of salvation without proclaiming a message of danger, a message of the wrath of God, a message about rejecting God. And that's why Stephen does what he does. Stephen does a brilliant job in telling the truth of the gospel as the servant of Jesus Christ to say to them, you need to understand the danger you are in. You are being like your ancestors. And they rejected Joseph and they rejected Moses and they didn't listen to Solomon. And you need to be careful that you don't do the same thing. And it's so easy to want to take out the hard things of the gospel. It is. It, you know, it, it, the gospel is offensive. It doesn't mean we act offensive when we say it. But the gospel is hard because the message of the gospel is the way you're living your life is leading to eternal ruin. And Jesus has come to rescue you from that. And there's no way to change that. And I want you to see that Stephen's life is on the line when the response here is going to be a horrific response. Stephen's life is on the line and he does not backpedal out of that and go, maybe I should soften it up right now because I know they killed my Lord and they wanted to kill the apostles. And the only reason they didn't was because Gamaliel stepped in and said, you know, we don't want to fan the flames and make this get out of control. It'll burn out on its own if it's not from God. And Stephen could have stepped in and said, Guys, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to be so upsetting to you. I, I, I know those were hard words. And, and I apologize. So that he could spare his life and go spend more years preaching the gospel. It's easy to justify things that way, isn't it? I'll just preserve myself and not speak the truth of the gospel so that I don't get in trouble, so that we can keep doing the work. But we have to remember that we have to proclaim what the gospel is. And remember the Apostle Paul said, if we don't do it, how are people going to know? If we don't tell them what this is about, that this is not about some psychological therapeutic help that you're going to feel so much better by following Jesus, but that your soul is at stake. And if you don't come to Christ, you are doomed if we don't proclaim that message, we're not helping anybody. And if we don't say it, who will? And you have to be impressed that Stephen, as a servant of God, he's not an apostle. He's nobody special. He's just a Christian. He's just a servant. And he stands before the Sanhedrin and says, you guys are rejecting God. And that's going to be to your own doom. And the ending is just so, it's so terrible. Verse 54. 
Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. This is an amazing final picture about a servant. It is Stephen now is standing at a moment where he is ready to die. And the confrontation that Stephen makes before this Sanhedrin council is amazing because the reaction of the council stands in contrast to Stephen sharply. Notice their response to hearing the gospel is rage, anger. They are grinding and gnashing their teeth. When you tell people the gospel, that's a frequent reaction. And our reaction to being confronted by sin says a lot about us. It just does. How we handle somebody saying your life is in sin. You're going the wrong way. That's not what God wants. It's easy to have this kind of response. How dare you say something like that to me? Many people have that response. When you confront them with sin. Or you tell them what God says. When you tell them the truth. When you say you can't do what you want to do. You can't live your life like that. There's going to be that kind of response. And yet while the council is enraged, here is Stephen seeing the glory of God. You've got to be impressed by that. You're getting another picture of validation by God. What Stephen has said and what Stephen has done is right. That you weren't supposed to read this and would go, whoa, he took a wrong turn somewhere. And wow, he's in hot water now. And what did he do? <laughs> this sermon and this example of Stephen is to be an example to us as what a servant does. Not a, okay, avoid that. Don't follow that path. No, here, while they're upset, seeing the glory of God. And not only that, he opens his mouth in verse 56 and he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I would hope an honest heart would stop what they were doing and try to look and see that. Stephen, I see God. Verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. And rushed at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. But please listen to this. Verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen. He called out. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice. Lord, do not hold the sin against them. 
I just want you to take a step back and think. Would you be able to say that? They rush him, drag him out of the city, and are beginning to stone him. And he doesn't just simply think it in his mind. While they are stoning him to his death, in a loud voice, he says, Don't hold this sin against them. This picture of Stephen is a beautiful picture of what it means to be a servant. Because a servant's heart is so transformed by Jesus that you are able to echo the very words of Jesus. Remember, Jesus says something awfully similar. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And now Stephen, at the moment of his death, is this an injustice? Is this against the will of God? Is this a sin? Is this a wrong? Is this against his rights? It's against all of it. Lord, don't hold this sin against him. And this has to be where we come to as a servant, where our heart gets to for those who mistreat us and do things against us. I know what my earthly human reaction would want to be. I think there's a lot of things I can imagine would come to my mind. One of them would be, Lord, this can't be right. This is wrong. I just preached the gospel. That's all I did. This, Lord, this can't be right. Why aren't you doing something? Make this stop. And I know my other reaction would be, God, you need to French fry those terrible people who killed me. Right? I'm right. They're wrong. So God, burn them down. I'd be like uh, the sons of thunder. <laughs> Lord, let's have fire rain down on them. <laughs> I want you to just be stunned by Stephen. Stephen is somebody you've never heard of. And all of a sudden, there is a need that arises in the church in Jerusalem. And he is already prepared, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, good reputation. Church says, we need seven to serve. He goes, I'll do that. And not only will I do that, I will go far beyond that. I'll go beyond what you've called me to do. I'll share the gospel. I'll, I'll debate these people who are coming in and saying Jesus is not the Son of God. I'll, I'll do that. To the point where he even is called to stand alone, all by himself, before the Sanhedrin Council. And he proclaims the truth of the gospel to the point because he is ready to die for the gospel. And as he's ready to die for the gospel, he has such a heart of service, such a heart and such a love for God 
that he does not say, God, you've got to bring vengeance and justice for my death on them, but is able to cry out in a loud voice so that everybody who could hear, who was stoning him, would hear him say, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And I just want to say to you, the idea of making me a servant, it requires not thinking about self. From start to finish in the life of Stephen, everything that he did meant he didn't think about himself. Yeah, the widows are being being neglected. Surely somebody else could do it. I mean, you think about the time we get to Acts chapter 6, friends, there are thousands. We can't count anymore. It's multitudes upon multitudes. Stephen could step back and go, hey, there's thousands here. It doesn't need to be me. Somebody else will do it. He didn't think about himself. He stepped into the task. He didn't think about himself. He went beyond the task. He didn't think about himself. He told everybody the truth of the gospel. He didn't think about himself because he's willing to die for the truth of the gospel. And he definitely didn't think about himself when he offered to God, don't hold that sin against him. This is the essence of what service is. This is what a picture of a servant's heart is all about. This is the snapshot that God wants us to see about Stephen is the heart of a servant. And this is what we've been called to do. Now, I'll leave you with an option. Normally, right here, I say we're going to pray. And you can either close your eyes or you can read this prayer because my prayer for our ending are the lyrics from the invitation song that we're about to sing. And so I wanted the song to really strike our hearts by us thinking about the words because the words of this song are a prayer. And so the words say, this and this is our prayer this morning make me a servant just like your son for he was a servant please make me one make me a servant do what you must do to make me a servant make me like you Make me a servant. Take all my pride. For I would be lowly, humble inside. Giving to others with all that I do. In love for my brother, make me like you. Make me a servant filled with your might. And may all my labors shine with your light. Show me your footsteps and what I should do for now and forever. Make me like you. Lord, we need the heart of a servant like we see in Stephen. Please give us that heart. Lord, give us hearts to not think about ourselves. But Lord, transform us. Transform us to be kind, gentle, forgiving people share the good news of Jesus to everyone around us, ready to die, ready to serve, ready to give. In Jesus' name, amen.